You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into... Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. All right, dude, we are here for another freaking great franchise, The Twilight Zone. Yes, yes. How sick is that? I think this is a good episode for us to do now because we've been sort of like kind of veering this direction a little bit. Like we did X-Files. So I think, you know, following it up with its predecessor, The Twilight Zone, or a predecessor in some ways, The Twilight Zone. I think it makes a lot of sense. Plus, you know, who doesn't love the Twilight Zone? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Well, I got to tell you, man, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Yesterday Mm -hmm. was my birthday. Oh yeah. I was about to get to that. We recorded a podcast the day after my birthday a while back and now we are doing the day after. Yeah. Yeah. And so dude, guess what I got a chance to do for my birthday. It was so freaking rad. I got to know, man. I got to (laughs) know. This is dude. It's so mind blowing, but I have, uh, I'm staying with my buddy in Florida, a close friend of mine, his surfer. And he came out and stayed with me, his family for a while in uh, California. And so he, his son just turned 16 years old. Okay. And he's never seen star Wars. Oh, shit. (laughs) I know, dude. How mind-blowing is that? We're talking about A New Hope. Any of them. Oh, any Any, of them. Wow. Any of them. Man. I'm like, dude, what the hell is going on? And so I was like, all right, for my birthday, this is for me. I get to watch (laughs) your reaction to being a 16-year-old kid and never seeing um, Star Wars. And so, you know, which, you know what I busted out that I talked about like a year and a half ago that I started the whole thing with, I started the whole thing with my cut of the last Jedi. I don't know if you okay. ever even saw it. I still haven't seen it yet. Send me a link so I can post it when we post this video and also remind me, let's get that link going so that we okay. can, uh... I'm so obsessive about this. And I, and I do think like when I rewatched it, like he was like, Oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing ever, but it's my cut, but I have two cuts. This is how obsessive I am over this, over star Wars. I have two cuts. One I called the Curacao cut. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it's, it's black and white. Very cool. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's black and white. So I've cut the movie down to like, I don't know, like an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and 10 minutes, something like that. And um, and it is just the most samurai. It's so freaking it's such a cool entry into the whole universe. Now, I had to explain a few things like he, like he knew a few things like, oh, a Jedi. I think this is this and this. But um, but it really is a cool entry into the whole universe. You know, when you get a little bit of the background, um, because, you know, you're there with Ray going through right. the training, right? Just right. kind of like Luke is uh, uh, discovering it. So I got to ask, this 16-year-old who wasn't familiar with Star Wars, I got to assume that he also was not familiar with Akira Kurosawa. Oh, not at all. So okay, we didn't okay. watch. We didn't watch that cut. Well, you didn't that, watch the Kurosawa cut. Okay. No, I didn't watch the black and white. That was just purely for me to see. Like, oh, you know what? 
I really want to see that one as I am familiar with Kurosawa films and also have seen all the Star Wars films. So that one, that, that one's very intriguing to me. So it's, it's so good. And the other one is, um, it's the same cut, but this one is more of like a Kodachrome, um, uh, it's color, but it's mm-hmm. like that old school looking, like the like saturated a, color, you know, yeah, not too saturated, more faded a little bit. Oh, I see. It's, it's, it's very subtle. But that one is still a little different also in the, the color and treatment. So the, uh, they're both freaking dope. But we, I rewatched it, man, and he was like, I cannot believe how rad that is. And what was cool for me is I hadn't seen the cut in like, I don't know, like a year. And I was like, dude, this is my favorite. And, and, and that was the thing about The Last Jedi. I knew when I watched it that I was like, there is one of the coolest movies buried inside of all this Mm. crap Mm -hmm. you know i think the best samurai version of of any of the movies you know it kind of like distills that for me it's like i love the the train i love training and so the the training aspects and the gear up aspects of movies like that trope like with the matrix that's why i love the first matrix oh yeah it's all training yeah, it's all training, and that's why, like, uh, Empire Strikes Back, that was my favorite Star Wars before this one. And now this cut, to me, is even goes even further. And not only that— When are you going to make your Kurosawa cut of Empire? Oh, dude, how cool is that? I should do that. I know, I should do that. You know, what's—, what's, uh, what's I tried to—I thought, you know, there were a number of elements in—what um, was the first one that J.J. Abrams did? The Force Awakens. Yeah, The Force Awakens. There were a number of elements of that movie that really bugged the shit out of me that I was like, God, it's just you can hear the lawnmower now. But the, the, what I didn't what I didn't like about the uh, the J.J. Abrams uh, uh, take on The Force Awakens was the fact that the uh, so many of the scenes were just rehashes and they weren't original. It's a tribute movie. The thing is, I like that movie. I enjoy it, but really mostly on a purely nostalgic basis, like when they reveal the Millennium Falcon in the sand. Yeah, I enjoyed it, but it to me, it was just like, oh, I wish they would have went really original on this. And so I started trying to do a cut of The Force Awakens, and I couldn't do it because – the scenes that if you cut out those scenes, it just the movie didn't work. It didn't hold up. But right. the, but the Last Jedi, it's ba- it's really two movies. It's one amazing movie inside of you know a bunch of shit, a bunch of dumb ass scenes. And so um, so it was really it was easier to do like just to uncover what he had also. Uh, had filmed in there and it dude it is so freaking good man i could not believe it. i can't wait for you to watch it you're gonna I, i'm it. excited yeah. send it my way for sure we'll link it it's a good birthday present to get to oh. show something you love and something that you created that's combined yeah like i said all i did with this was cut out the shit you know cuts have creators in my opinion i do like amateur cuts of stuff I, i've watched quite a few of them over the course of my life did you ever go back and watch like Topher Grace from uh, that '70s show? Was such a fanatic. You mean Venom from Spider-Man? Yeah, Venom. <laughs> <laughs> he did his own cut of all the prequels. I think cut all three together. I've never seen his version. I have seen that. 
How is it? You know, much better than the prequels by taking on their own. That's for sure. I know. Let's see. This is episode like 24 or 25 now. Mm-hmm. And I think we've bashed the prequels <laughs> in, about, in about half of the episodes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, like, we, okay, like every other, you know. <laughs> well, you know. We have no emotional <laughs> interest. Yeah, in we've Star got some Wars. real hot takes for you guys here. <laughs> probably need therapy. <laughs> so I think what I'm going to do is after this, so we watched Last Jedi. Now I'm going to backtrack and go to uh, Rogue One because okay. I think Rogue One is is should go before, okay. obviously before Star Wars. I think that yeah, Rogue is, One, Rogue One is very, is very much a Kurosawa style movie all on its own. Oh my gosh! Uh, yeah in a way it's almost like yo jimbo and i'm stoked man he gets to watch rogue one which to me is aside from you know as far as the movies that are the way they are cut to me rogue one is my favorite by far but now this last uh this last jedi these cuts are by far even before rogue one but if i had to put them in order it'd be this like kurosawa cut or ronin cut and then uh Rogue One and then, you know, going through there. But what's going to, what's cool is that he can then watch even after all of it, go back and watch Mandalorian, you know, because it's mm-hmm. funny. Yeah. You said that about Yojimbo and I'm like spaghetti Western, but then spaghetti Western is really what it's so circular because that's what Mandalorian is, right? Sure, for just sure, a complete for sure. spaghetti Western. Yeah. We talked about John that. The, Lo- the, right? Yeah. Lo- Lo- the lone wolf and cub aspect of it too. Like the Japanese period drama aspect of it as well. What else did you do for your birthday? Well, I got a little surf in, which was cool. Uh, not, you know, their surf here in Florida is rare. So we had like waist high surf. And so, but the dude, the water, it, what I love about here is I don't have to wear a wetsuit. So in, in California, yeah, it's like 85 degrees, dude. Mm. It's like the warmest water in the world. It's pretty calm right there right now, right? Mm-hmm. Like all the tropical storms have moved out of the area. Yeah. For now. For now. We're still in peak season, so I'm sure we'll have something. Yeah, one will form overnight. I lived on the coast of Georgia for seven or eight years. Every season, it'd be like, okay, let's look and see what's forming out in the ocean today. Yeah, like every day. <laughs> you have to because like, if you're trying to make plans in a week, it takes a week for a hurricane to form and then strike land, you know? Yeah. So like right now, you're like, okay, nothing on the radar, but today a tropical storm could form out there and then one week from now, it'll be a category four hitting the coast that quick too and you're, and you're like what do we do <laughs> yeah exactly you know all of a sudden your weekend plans are evacuation it happens okay hold on last thing you know what else i did on my birthday i think i watched it like two or three times i watched the new matrix uh, trailer it finally dropped we mentioned on a previous episode doing a matrix episode and i just spurred my interest so i went back and watched the whole trilogy like you over did? the past yeah, I've seen all the the original trilogy in the past like two weeks now. Wow! And they sort of abandoned the red pill blue pill thing after the first film. It's not really referenced in either of the other two films, which I hated the second two movies when they came out. But watching them again, I didn't hate them as much. They're not as strong as the first film, but it's actually a pretty good trilogy. A little too much machine gun fighting going on. I was just about to say that, and you know, one of the thing the reasons that I didn't because I agree with you hundred percent, Winston, is that the second two movies were the sequels were just like. God, ugh. but I, I think what I was really disappointed in was, and this brings it back to Twilight Zone, is that what I loved about um, the ma- the first Matrix was the mystery. 
right? And then like you're saying, then it became like an action and not even a great action movie. Yeah, yeah. And, just- and where the mystery was like, whoa, 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 whoa. There's a lot of mystery and religion in, in the first one. And it just gone in the second two. And it looks like, I don't know what your take is, but it looks like to me, they're returning to that in the fourth one. It does seem like they're going to try to lean into the elements that set the first film apart, which, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. So one of the things that I really, when I was watching the movie that I was like, Christ, why is every character wearing sunglasses? It doesn't make sense. They're all fucking underground. Why is everybody wearing sunglasses? And I'm just like, I know it's because of that late 90s aesthetic that they developed for the first film. And because they that was the aesthetic of the first the film. Noir, they to, that like yeah, noir, but they have to carry yeah. it into the, into the franchise or whatever. But to me, it feels really dated now. It felt dated by the time I was watching the second and third movie. You know what I yeah. mean? Because they came, I was already like, okay, now it's starting to tax on me that it's so hyper stylized in a style that only existed in that little tiny and honestly in my opinion kind of a regrettable style that late 90s early 2000s aesthetic was not one of our as a culture our best efforts it works for the first movie you know but i think as time goes on it's working less so we'll see we'll see how the Wachowski's it, it looks like they kind of changed some of that like keanu has long hair it doesn't look like he's wearing the glasses hopefully they're leaning way more into the mystery of twilight zone i mean it's easy to write you know the matrix has been reset to instead of being perpetually 1999 it's perpetually 2021 yeah and hopefully they do something like that okay so i'm gonna catch you up real quick on what i've been up to let me hear it went to dragon con over the this past weekend dude i saw that how was it it was great. It's the, it's the first like public thing I've really done, you know, since the whole pandemic started. Oh. And and it was like reduced occupancy. You had to provide proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test in order to get access. And it was mm-hmm. masked indoors the whole time. So as far as safety goes, I felt hesitantly comfortable. You know, I mean, I was like happy to be there. Still a little on guard, but happy to be there. Normally, after you go to a convention, which I've done Dragon Con several times in the past, you get what you call the con crud, which is just like feeling generally shitty the next few days, kind of sick, kind of coffee, that kind of thing. Just because you're in a room with so many people, like just being in a convention, your chances of getting catching something that makes you a little bit sick are skyrocket. But this time I didn't get anything. I felt 100% as soon as I came home. And uh, it's, you know, it's a week on now and I still feel totally fine. It's just thanks to wearing a mask. You know, it's as simple as that. Like I just didn't breathe in as much foreign particles. People weren't breathing as much into the air and just, I just didn't feel shitty afterwards. So, you know, even if it's not like a COVID situation, it seems to me like masking up in big crowds is a good idea just for your general health. Dude, I think I'll always be wearing a mask on a plane. I mean, I always used to get sick on a plane, man. For, For sure. But it was, I had a really good time. I handed out a bunch of Infinite World stickers. I didn't, I wasn't there in any sort of, official capacity um i considered getting into that but then like whether or not dragon con 2021 would happen was really up in the air until the very last minute and i just yeah. didn't you know strike while the iron was hot so to speak so i just was there wandering around with my friends that was pretty cool <sighs> i can't wait to go back man i haven't been to comic-con or anything for it feels like forever well hopefully things are you know i know i really obviously the delta variant still going we're not out of the woods by any means or whatever. But, you know, so long as these kind of conventions are doing safety protocols and all those kind of thing, I think I'm going to start trying to fly out 
to conventions and set up Infinite Worlds booths and that kind of thing going forward. It's almost time for that. Yeah. Probably won't happen until 2022, but that's only, you know, a few months away at this point. Yeah. Dude, I haven't been to a movie theater and it's going on, what is it, almost two years in yeah. March, you know, Me or either. a year and a half. I literally cannot remember the last movie I saw in a movie theater. It's a crying shame because I worked at a movie theater for a long time. I was a projectionist. I love going to the movie theater. It is one of my greatest passions just because you can't play on your phone. You can't talk. You are completely immersed in the storytelling experience. And that is something that I cherish. I know. I, I Dude, a buddy of mine who's a big fan of the podcast and uh, his name's Jared. I think I told you about him. He's a lead singer for the band uh, Dirty Heads. And he, oh, right, right, right. he told me that he rented out a movie theater by his house for Dune. And he goes, dude, it was like 250 bucks. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, we just did like a, a early morning and, and it cost basically nothing. You get a few friends. I'm like, dude, I might do that. I'm going to look into that here. That would be so rad. Man. Right? Private, screen, private screening of Dune? Yeah, dude. I'm definitely watching Dune. In a mo- I'm going to watch Dune in a movie theater and I'm going to watch Matrix 4 in a movie theater. I don't care if I wear, have to wear a fucking hazmat suit. I'm watching Dune <laughs> in a movie theater. Right? Uh, oh, my like, gosh. Also, like, the reviews are coming back strong. I know. Uh, I saw which, that. Which is, which is really nice, you know. And obviously, I want to temper my expectations here, but I am really looking forward to it. Ugh. Man, it's going to be so cool. I'm freaking the freak It's out. what all of us nerds really desperately need is for a really badass science fiction movie to come out. Yes, dude. And if we if we can get it with Dune and if The Matrix is good, whew, oh, it'll be a man. good 2020, right? 2021, but yeah, we'll, we'll make, I'm, so, I'm so lost. <laughs> yeah, the, the timeline is hiccuping, man. It's, it's, it's a glitch oh, in the Matrix. My gosh. So anyways, here's to the Matrix. And again, you know, watching that trailer, it really made me reflect on the Twilight Zone and the way, you know, as I went back and I watched, you know, some of the old episodes of the Twilight Zone, what I really loved about it and what I realized I loved as a little kid um, when I would just catch a rerun here and there. I mean, I started watching my experience with the Twilight Zone is I started watching that when I was really, really young. When I was growing up, we were raised by the television. You know, you just every afternoon, every morning, dude. Me too. So, yeah, there would be these uh, in syndication, you know, Twilight Zone would come on. And, you know, what blew me away and I realized was kind of a formula for the Twilight Zone was the misdirection. You know, in this mystery and the so, twist ending, the twist ending, dude, the twist ending where you're just like, what? I didn't see that coming or what? Right. That's where it was going. That's what, you know, and as a little kid, man, it was like just your just brain just goes, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. And so when I, I think when I was like uh, 10 or 11 years old, my mom took me to a bookstore, you know, go to the bookstore, get a book, whatever. And I saw on one of the tables where they had just things for sale, they had um, a big, thick, and I'm talking like six inches thick, big book of Twilight Zone teleplays. And so oh, they were the man. actual scripts. Yeah. yeah, dude, I took that home and I would read, I read every single one. And I, I was like, oh my God. Gosh, I love Twilight Zone. So for me, going back and uh, and kind of like reviewing it is is just been such a great nostalgic trip. One thing that everybody really, you know, recognizes, we talked about nostalgia already. You, you just mentioned it. And I think the Twilight Zone 
has a lot of nostalgic value because it was such a prominent piece of early television. You know, yeah. Right now, you know, mid-century modern furniture is popular. Mad Men was a popular show. Harkening back to that era is really on the minds uh, of the culture. And The Twilight Zone was such a huge part of that. It was a big hit television show. Uh, it is one of the most referenced and influential TV shows probably of all time, especially when it comes to mystery and science fiction. It had plenty of pretenders, some that were pretty good and some that you know weren't as good emulating the show. But this whole phenomenon comes down to just really one person, one guy who championed the Twilight Zone and wrote the bulk of the stories for the series. And that's Rod Serling. Dude, just a titan of television. Like yeah, a saying. titan of television. Yeah. And you, you, there's really no other way to portray him. A titan of genre fiction. And really one of the most memorable characters on TV, just specifically from his introductions to each episode. <laughs> and, and forget the fact that he you know, created the show and wrote a great deal of the scripts, like two thirds of the scripts himself. And his other accomplishments on TV, he had a, a really good short-lived show in the 70s called Night Gallery as well. Dude, I used to watch Night Gallery too, man. When I was a little kid. That show was super awesome too. Oh, it scared the, when you're a little kid, that scared the, but I would watch it. It was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, what now, you know? Yeah, that was a great show. I really recommend that one. Let's paint a picture of Rod Serling, whose first name is actually Rodman, Rodman Serling. So this guy grew up a hyperactive, talkative Jewish kid in the suburbs of upstate New York, just a creative class clown type kid who talked all the time. One of my favorite anecdotes when learning about him is that one time his family was on a road trip together and they made a bet before he got in the car that if nobody replied anything he said or said anything at all that he wouldn't notice because he was talking so much and he didn't. They went their entire <laughs> truth. <laughs> oh my gosh. He talked to nonstop without waiting for a reply because his mind was going a mile a minute. Yeah. And in a way, I can understand that. You know, I can understand being like that, just always moving from one storyline to the next in your mind. And, you know, he was a kid that only grew up to be five foot four and so had a lot to prove. Uh, he tried to be a football player. He attempted to join the varsity team and they're like, nope, sorry, you're not you're not fit for this. He, apparently, he was pretty good at tennis, you know, as a teenager. Uh, but generally speaking, he wasn't really an athletic person. You know, he wanted to be, though. He graduated high school in 1943 and decided after high school that he was going to join the war effort. And we, I think we talk about that sometimes on this show about how formative and how significant World War II was to the history of the 20th and 21st century. It, it can't really be understated. I've said it a lot of times and I'm still only scratching – I feel like I've only scratched the surface of how important the events of World War II were to the culture of the world as we know it today. Yeah, in so many ways. I mean, there were such, it's almost like that was kind of the shattering, I think the beginning of the shattering of the innocence of, um, I agree. In of a the lot culture. Of ways. Because so many of these guys went over there and experienced absolute horror, right? Absolute horror. And he was no different. He um, went and joined the uh, U.S. Army in 1943 and became a parachuter, which, you know, is a, risky job all by itself without even ever seeing combat and went through his training. He definitely had some injuries, but nothing that kept him from seeing combat. 
And while he was doing it, he also became a boxer in the army, like joined the army boxing ranks. Oh, wow. You know, he wasn't that great, but he was really aggressive, according to the thing. He had a berserker style. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you're a professional fighter. So you understand the berserker style. Uh, and, you know, it's not necessarily a skilled style. You know, yeah. it's just a, a go for broke, try to knock yeah, him out. It's not kind of, much technique hoping yeah, not, against hope. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But he was pretty successful based on the style because he was so gutsy. Another little great anecdote is that he uh, fought 17 fights and he's known among his friends for getting his nose broken in his first fight and his last fight. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So then he sees combat and they send his ass to the Philippines. Again, some of you aren't going to have a lot of perspective about World War II, but the Pacific Theater during World War II was a horror show like no other. The rules of war as they existed, you know, in formal combat were completely abandoned at this point. The Japanese dug into the islands that they occupied and the emperor of Japan ordered everyone to fight to the death. And that's not how battles typically work. You know, typically, once the situation becomes hopeless, their surviving troops surrender. Typically, their commander orders them to surrender. You know, there's no point in having them killed. There's some chance that they might get their prisoners of war back and put them back into combat. So ordering your troops to fight to the death is a terrifying prospect in war. It's a war crime, truthfully. But Emperor Hirohito was not exactly, uh, you know, they existed on a whole different system of morality than uh, Western culture. So things got really... Yeah, with the kamikaze pilots, and it was just like, we are going to... Yeah, kamikaze pilots, yeah. Fighting the Germans, which is why he signed up for the army in the first place, because he was a Jewish kid with a chip on his shoulder during World War II. He wanted to go personally kill Hitler. He's quoted as saying that. But he got sent to the Pacific Theater instead, ended up in the Philippines, and went through hell. Absolute hell. He saw death, both of the enemy and his fellow combatants every day. He was in a campaign that had a 50% casualty rate in his regiment, meaning that half of his regiment was killed and he survived. That's four, over 400 men were killed from his regiment, you know, whom he personally knew almost all of. Dude, you know, I, I, I read this anecdote. I don't know if you saw this, but it was it was so gnarly. Like his best friend that he was over there with, um, planes were dropping food crates. Mm-hmm. And one landed on his friend's head and decapitated him right, right in front of him. Yeah, his friend was giving a performance, like doing a like a comedy performance in front of the other troops. And this happened in front of everyone. Shut the fuck up. Are you serious? I didn't read that. Yeah, oh, that is- my God. Gosh. Uh, in front of everyone. And that experience. Dude, hold on. Let that sit for a minute. Yeah. So this dude was up there giving a, a comedy performance. That's right. That's right. In a crazy I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it was stand-up comedy or what Yeah, stand-up but just entertaining. Oh, yes. my God. Can you imagine being there? The iron. The, how about the twist ending on that? The one? twist ending. Hey, See, here's, this, <laughs> that specific oh. incident. That specific incident was extremely formative. Despite he saw violence everywhere all oh. the time, but the idea that death can come from anywhere at any time, no matter what situation you're in, the irony of all of this combat happening all around him and his friend being on stage and being killed in a freak accident 
really, really, really sat with Serling. And it really forged a lot of his views on storytelling. Wow. I was just reading about a publisher who had gone over in World War One, and kind of the same thing happened. And he was a, a medic and it just, he ended up, he, he became like, I think he had a, what is it? Black Sun Press. Um, and he started a publishing uh, magazine, kind of like you, and uh, published like Hemingway and just all these writers and ended up killing himself by 30. But the things that he saw scrambled mm-hmm. him so much, just like you're saying, the random death out of nowhere. Yes. Uh, it reminds me a lot of the philosopher Schopenhauer and how he uh, just that was a lot of his meditations where it can come out of nowhere at any time how are you feeling comfortable? You know what I mean? You, it's, it's insane to feel comfortable, right? It is. It is. It also reminds me a lot of uh, slaughterhouse five. Yes. Which also, yes. you know, is based on events that were witnessed by the author in world war two. Yeah. Vonnegut and Serling very much. Yeah. Definitely story. have, yeah. have a similar situation. You know, the only difference was that Vonnegut didn't really want to fight and Serling really did want to, he, he wanted to prove himself. Okay. So he, he goes through all this stuff. He gets a purple heart, a bronze star and a Philippine liberation medal. So he's a decorated soldier that saw tons of combat in World War II. I also read something, just let me interject this. Not only that, he spent time in occupied Japan mm-hmm. after the war and That's saw right. how badly the U.S. soldiers then treated the, the civilians, women and children, Japanese. And he, I think it was just like the horrors of humanity, not just yes. the Japanese or the Germans, humanity in general. Sure, for sure. After he came back to America, after his time as an occupying soldier in Japan, where like I think we've mentioned this on the podcast before, basically America rewrote Japan's constitution and changed the way that Japanese people lived their lives since. Like it hasn't changed back, you know, or you know, significantly since how America set it up post World War II. Yeah. So you know, America as an occupying force is a pretty big theme too. You know, not just you know in post war sci fi writing, but in Serling's writing altogether. He he became eventually like an anti-war activist. Just like Vonnegut. Just like Vonnegut. When you see the horrors of war, you stop having a taste for war, typically. There are are obviously exceptions, people that go back and back again. But lots of people are affected by war by realizing – that it's nothing but a horror show. You know, I'm going to bring some up. There was because uh, anytime I can talk about it, but my favorite uh, short story writer is a guy named Tom Jones, mm-hmm. and he wrote short stories um, like in the mid '90s, okay. and just just the, in the New Yorker, he just had this like explosion um, of of stories that were published, put out a few anthologies, and then his like war injuries and all these things. And he had PTSD from uh, Vietnam. Mm. He, um, and he was a boxer and had head trauma and ended up dying. But, uh, I I loved how his stories were so very masculine. Like I've talked about this before. Like, you know, we read like Chuck Palinant wrote fight club, right? But he, he's a gay, he's gay. He's openly gay. And so it really, you have these like different themes. I could never write like he writes, right? Because he has a different perspective and you know, what's her name who wrote uh, hunger games. It's a very much a a female triangle. Yeah. Suzanne Collins. And she gives this, Hey, this is what it's like to be a female in that two males love you. And you get to go to a ball and pick out dresses. 
I could never, you know what I mean, do that. And Tom Jones, I was thinking about, I love how he talks about boxing and he talks about war. But then I, I realized what I really like about it is he glamorizes these things as they're macho and masculine. But they always end with like these Twilight Zone type things where it, he reflects on the horrors of it. And, and, and I was like, wow, you know, he's giving that balanced treatment. And now I'm realizing, wait a minute, you got Vonnegut doing the same thing. You got Sterling doing the same thing. It's like, it's crazy to me that we live in a society that glamorizes fighting and war and all that. But so many people, like, I think that's my big anger that I have about the, the whole Iraq war, even though it's 20 years old. But I remember all these people were like, yeah, let's go to war. Let's go to war. And now with we've got, you know, how many hundreds of thousands of veterans that aren't being taken care of that have PTSD right. from all this. Right. Why, you were cheering then. Why aren't you out there protesting for their rights? You know, the Iraq war ended with a million Iraqi civilians killed. A million Iraqi Jeez. civilians killed because of three thousand in at at nine eleven. It had nothing to do with that. It had literally nothing I at all to do that. with that. Like it was a based on a complete fabrication that they had weapons of mass destruction, so that, in my opinion, Bush Junior could settle a score from the Bush Senior era. He talked about it. Yeah, yeah he, 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 said, he said so. He said so openly. <laughs> you know, and that's a million innocent people killed. You know, and. War is almost never just, almost never, in my opinion. It is here and there. And I do think that World War II is a great example of it. And that's why I think it's so significant too, because I really don't feel like there's been a truly just war, at least that America was involved in, since. Dude, you know what though? It's They, again, they have been justified by people, but yeah. I, I, I don't see them as just. No, I agree with that. And I think one of the reasons that you get – especially a, a writer like um, Serling that mm-hmm. gravitates to sci-fi is not just because he grew up listening to sci-fi shows like Twilight Zone on the radio. Right. You know, he was influenced by these things, but I think that he saw it as a way that in the fifties, you know, when America was still, there was so much censorship. This was McCarthyism. This way right. you didn't criticize anything right. that there was one avenue through which you could criticize war and things like this. And it was sci-fi. Right. Sci-fi provided the cover to say, listen, we're going to protest. We'll do it in allegory and metaphor. But sci-fi provided that. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, he used the the show as a medium to express lots of thoughts like that. Uh, Anti-censorship was a big part of it. I just watched an episode the other day about censorship, and uh, he also was anti-racism. There's a ton of episodes of the show that, you know, allude to racism here, including one that's literally about racism in America. He was a political figure as well, an activist in his own right through television, through the medium that he controlled. And many war, right? Many, many of the episodes dealt with war. And, yeah, and, absolutely. You know, yeah. And, and the sudden unexpected nature of death as well. Yeah, He set several episodes in the Philippines where he had been stationed. You know, so he absolutely had a big part of it. I want to tell you a little bit more about his history before we get into the show, though, because yeah. I think there's one more awesome thing about him. I'm just going to read this entire paragraph from Wikipedia, but this is just so tight. Okay. For money in his college years, Serling worked part time testing parachutes for the U.S. Army Air Forces. According to his radio station co workers, he received $50 for each successful jump and once had been paid $500, half before and half if he survived, 
for a hazardous test. His last jump, test jump was a few weeks before his wedding, and in one instance, he earned $1,000 for testing a jet ejection seat that had killed the previous three testers. What a lunatic. <laughs> How could you live life more on the edge than that? Wow. You know, like he survived the Pacific Theater. He, he survived when literally half of his regiment was killed. And, and he was involved in tons of other battles besides that one specific battle. And through the whole war and through pet testing parachutes in the army and then getting out of the army and being like, you know what? That wasn't enough of risking my life for me. I'm also going to test an ejection seat that killed the last three people that tried it. But it didn't kill Rod Serling. You know, he earned a thousand bucks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh my God. So I just, you know, I just, I think it's important that we set up the character of Serling. Because- oh gosh. Especially like you're saying when he wasn't just the creator, he was, right. he wrote the bulk of the episodes. Yeah. He wrote two thirds of the episodes of the show. And there are very, very, very few creators that do something like that. Even the most famous television show creators f- don't write that many of their own episodes. No, uh, I don't and, know and how they did it. I and, know and you know, I can tell you how they did it is because some of them aren't that great. Yeah. You know, and I'm going to be fully honest. The, the Twilight Zone is a little bit of a hit or, hit or miss show for me. Doesn't mean I don't enjoy watching every single episode of the Twilight Zone because I do. There's pretty much no episode that I won't enjoy watching, but as far as the stories really making sense or the twist at the end of the stories making sense, they're not always 100%. And uh, that's going to come when you're supposed to be putting out an episode you know, every two weeks and you're doing all of the writing and producing and directing and all of those things. Sometimes the stories are going to suffer. But at least for every whatever story, there's a super memorable episode of The Twilight Zone that everybody loves and can reference at will. And everyone will understand. Yeah. I can't wait to talk about my favorite episodes. Before we do that, we're going to talk about how first Serling tried to be uh, on the radio. Because this was the early 50s and television hadn't quite gotten the foothold that it wouldn't by the time of the late 50s. I didn't know that. So I don't want to hear this. Let's. So he tried a bunch of different radio things first, all sorts of different kinds of things. He was selling his scripts. But then he said, and this is a quote from him, radio in terms of drama dug its own grave. It had aimed downward. It had become cheap and unbelievable and had willingly settled for second best. This is like 1950, basically, he's talking about when he made the transition from radio, which he did post-war years, to television. So television started off slow. Buying a television is a big expense for a family. you know. And when they've had the radio for a long time and it costs way less than TV and the radio program is still on all the channels, it's a little bit of a tough sell to ask a suburban family – also buy a very, very expensive television that's only got two channels that, you know, has broadcasting from 9 a.m. until 10 p.m. So it took a while for it to catch on, but he got involved with it early-ish. I mean, it, I think broadcast television started in the 40s, but it was the 50s where it really blew up. So he got involved early on, and by 1955, five years after he had been involved in television, you know, trying to write scripts for this and that, the Hallmark Hall of Fame and Appointment with Adventure and all sorts of stuff, he was working for Kraft Television Theater, like the Kraft Company. And his 72nd script was a script called Patterns. And this was a a story about an older aging executive – competing with a new young executive and 
it's a kind of a thoughtful script about giving yourself to corporate life and what happens at the end of that. Mm -hmm. And it got broadcast on the craft television theater as a script called Patterns. And he and his wife had hired a babysitter for the night and told her no one would call because we had, they had just moved to town. And after the show broadcast, the phone started ringing and didn't stop for years. So basically this just catapulted him into maybe not fame necessarily, but into being a uh, sought after scriptwriter. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what he did next was sold a bunch of his old scripts because everybody called him all at once. I was like, Hey, you got any more of that good pattern stuff? Uh-huh. And he's like, he's like, sure. I got all these scripts laying around. But the problem was that a lot of these scripts weren't as good as patterns. Yeah. You know, they had been scripts that he had been learning to write on. So they produced a, a few of them and then the reputation became, okay, he's okay. He's not, you know, amazing. Yeah. So he kind of like fell off. Then another script came out the next year called Requiem for a Heavyweight, which later became a feature film starring Jackie Gleason. And it's about boxing. And like you said, it's a story about in a way that glamorizes boxing, but in another way shows you the horrors of the, the culture. That balance of machismo and thoughtfulness that became a big thing in the 1960s. And that really kind of set him up a lot. Okay, then he started producing more scripts for different television shows, but he started encountering censorship. This was in the mid-1950s, 1956. This was the height of McCarthyism in America. And if you guys don't know about Joseph McCarthy, he was a bullshit senator from, I think, Illinois who earned his way to fame by pointing the finger at every remotely left-leaning person and accuse him of being a spy for the Communist Party during the height of the Cold War and basically turn the country against itself. Dude, he would have been so at home today, <laughs> right? He would have been a QAnon lover. Ugh. What we have right now is modern McCarthyism. There's no question. It, it's really wild that it's happening on the- o- On a scale of McCarthy. That's what's crazy. Oh, absolutely. It's 100%. Yeah. Right now it is September 10th, 2021. Tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, you know, and it's really been that since then to varying degrees. Once all the performative patriotism came out in the wake of that and the xenophobia and the, oh, you, you support terrorism, you're a socialist, terrorist, whatever, the buzzwords started happening and they really haven't stopped. No thanks to- Fox News. If you're not and, with us, then you're against us. Exactly. Don't and that, question I, anything we're doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 And that attitude is definitely making a comeback. It has for a while now. We'll see what happens in the future. Okay. So uh, Serling hated, hated being censored. He couldn't stand it. He was getting censored all the time. He tried to write a script about Emmett Till, the little boy who was uh, lynched. Oh, no shit. In the 50s. And it was censored. Wow. Uh, and he basically got fed up and was like, look, if the scripts I'm trying to sell are getting censored for the programs. I'm going to create my own fucking program. I'm not dealing with that. I'm not going to deal with that. Wow. So Rod Serling created a pilot called The Time Element, and CBS took the pilot and produced it. And guess who produced this one? Who? Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Oh, that's right. That's right. They also produced Star Trek. As well. I, yeah. So, uh, you know what? I love Lucy. I mean, <laughs> because <laughs> she, like, she was obviously a super forward thinking individual besides being a beautiful badass. 
So just you're just gonna another hats off to Lucille Ball. I'll never forget her. Okay, so the story's about a man who's having vivid nightmares about the attack on Pearl Harbor. He goes to see a psychiatrist, and after the session, there's a twist ending where it turns out that the patient has been dead for 15 years, and it's the psychiatrist who's having the dreams. That's so rad. It set the stage for the twist ending style. Yeah. And they produced this episode for Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse, which I assume was a uh, anthology program back in the day. It was so well received that they agreed to go ahead with the pilot for the Twilight Zone. And then the rest is history. You know, uh, he spent five seasons on the Twilight Zone from 1959 to 1963 or 64. My math is terrible. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sure you guys have seen his extremely characteristic intro to the TV show where he comes out and gives you sort of a poetic take on the morals that are uh, packed into each episode. It's such a genius thing that he did where he's introing. I mean, where did that come from? That had to be, that had to come from radio, you know, and I'm just guessing, but I mean, where did that come from? Well, I mean, there's an anecdote about that as well. One of the episodes was introduced on stage. It was being played in a the theater and Desi Arnaz came up and did the uh, introduction. And it wow. was, it was not that great. You know, he hadn't really prepared anything specific. He just came up and kind of winged it. Kind of like an MC, just kind of. Yeah, wow. yeah, exactly. And, you know, but it was shown again, but this time Rod Serling prepared an introduction and it was very, very well received. And uh, that that's is set what the led stage to, for it, yeah. to yeah, set the stage for this. Well, it, it really is cool because it's so iconic that everybody knows it, right? It's like, right. you know who, who he is, what he does. And he did the same thing in, uh, in Night Gallery. If you mm-hmm. haven't seen Night Gallery, so he introduced uh, those episodes that way. So Night Gallery was a cool little concept because he plays a like a night watchman at a museum, and he just walks around t- doing his little monologue, and then he gets to a painting, and the painting represents the story that's about to take place. Oh, dude, and it, they're so freaky. Like when you're a little kid, <laughs> especially, you're just like, oh my gosh, it's going to be so scary. The yeah. idea of an anthology series, uh, of sci-fi twisted anthology series with twist endings, has really been super successful you know i mentioned the x-files earlier and in a way the x-files is like a a narrative arc but in another way it is like an episodic monster of the week type show absolutely with, with tons yeah. of twist endings so it it obviously uh takes a lot from that and you know you've got the outer limits which was like a direct copy of the twilight zone i don't know why i, I wasn't i never really got into i watched outer limits it never grabbed me like there are like some twilight excellent zone. episodes of the outer limits as well uh, the outer limits hired a lot more outside writers serling wrote almost not all he wrote about two-thirds he wrote 92 of 156 episodes of the show and he had some writers uh namely richard matheson who wrote I Am Legend, and we talked about him in previous episodes several times, doing a number of episodes, and some other famous writers as well. But not, Harlan Ellison, right? Uh, no, Harlan Ellison never wrote for The Twilight Zone. Mm. He did write for The Outer Limits, though. Okay. Harlan Ellison was consulted as a creative consultant when they rebooted the show in the 1980s, though. Gotcha. And Harlan Ellison wrote a couple episodes for that one as well, including an adaptation of a Stephen King short story. <laughs> so it all kind of like, you know, comes together. I think any anthology series from, you know, uh, what was the Steven uh, Spielberg one that he did? Amazing Stories from Amazing, oh, amazing Stories. Okay, so to- Amazing Stories is based on the magazine Amazing Stories, yeah. which is something that he grew up reading. And he would perform the stories from Amazing Stories 
in his basement as a kid, to, like with his brothers. Who? Who? Rod Serling would. Oh, yeah. So there you go. So in a really very serious way, science fiction magazines dramatically affected the culture that came after it. Like these amazing stories, these were anthology magazines and Rod Serling basically translated that to television. Again, it's the reason that I love Infinite Worlds. It's there's something about short stories and sci-fi that are so rad. I couldn't agree um, more. I love short stories, but I don't know. I don't really read any other genre of short stories, but sci-fi for me, mm-hmm. I almost like it more in short story form than I do in the, the you know, novel length. Yeah. I, I uh, spent years running a website called the 500 where I did like one page short stories. I'd post a prompt every month. And then anybody who came across the prompt could submit a story, which I'd all, I pretty much always published unless it had any sort of like obvious hate mongering propaganda or something like that in there. But I almost always did. Because of that, I wrote a four to 600 word short story, almost always science fiction every month for 10 years. So I agree with you completely. Like short form has a lot to offer and novels can become a burden, you know, to a reader. So, but I say, especially when so much of it has to do with an explore or we're exploring an idea. You know what I mean? Which almost takes precedent or is at least on an equal footing with character and dialogue mm-hmm. and all that, where it's like, what is the idea that the, the the concept that the writer is like putting in front of us? And how does it relate from in, in a metaphorical sense with right. our current reality, right? Absolutely. Like racism or whatever it is. Oh, I never thought of it that, you know, that kind of a thing. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. And that's that's definitely something the short story form is really good at revealing. And, you know, and you can be done in novels as well. But like you say, you have to build characters, you have to build the world a lot more in those formats. And that can sometimes distract from the point you're trying to make. Yeah, absolutely. Here's a brief list that I just found online of shows that were really popular that were influenced by The Twilight Zone. Tales from the Crypt. Black Mirror, of course. Of course, yeah. There was a television show called Thriller back in the day. Are You Afraid of the Dark, which was a big one. There was a show called Dark Room back in the day. Amazing Stories, which I said was influenced by The Twilight Zone, which was influenced by Amazing Stories magazine. Kind of a really cool little cycle there. Yeah, The Outer Limits, which we mentioned. Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He did his own anthology series. And Alfred Hitchcock actually wrote an episode of The Twilight Zone as well. Trip on that. Yeah, seriously. And there's a pretty cool show right now called Electric Dreams, which is a Philip K. Dick sponsored. I've seen it. Although it's all Philip K. Dick short stories that they're adapting for television, you know, it still has that one-off anthology feel. Yeah. That's what my wife really likes, thank goodness. She also likes The X-Files and Twilight Zone quite a bit as well, but it's cool. We, we can find a lot of anthology shows to watch together. You know, I think you guys get the point of how important The Twilight Zone was and what it meant to television and who Rod Serling was as a person and what his ideas about reality were like. So let's talk about some of your favorite episodes. I think my favorite episodes are pretty well-known ones. So uh, we might have a little bit of uh, overlap here. Yeah, yeah. I, I just remember the first one I ever saw. I was so young. And it was about it was there was a woman who was being operated on mm. and mm-hmm. they were doing some kind of facial reconstruction on her and she had bandages on and they they finally took them off and they revealed her and then they they like she saw herself and she was so horrified by how ugly she was. And, th- and she was really beautiful. She was like a beautiful she looked like a model. 
Yeah, then they showed her and she was beautiful, you know, the stunning, you know, 50s, blonde hair, blue eyes, just beautiful. And you were like, what's going on? What's going on? And then they showed, finally, they kept showing, like whenever they would show the doctors or the nurses, they were always in shadow. And or then, wearing masks to cover their yeah. faces. And then, and then you finally got to see them and they were all hideous. They all look like alien, weird creatures. And, um, I just remember at the, I remember that reveal and it was like, oh my gosh. So it was like a, a mirror, like what is beauty? I mean, that was the, the, the theme, right? So right exactly. It's, it's, whatever we accept is beauty. That's what's beauty because they considered her to be ugly and they considered them, you know, obviously she considered them to be the ideal. And at the end, I think she was getting like on a spaceship or something where they were like, come on, come with us. You can finally be with your own people. And they were normal looking people like her. And that's how I remember the episode. So it had this sci-fi. They were getting on a spaceship. There was this twist. The episode is called, appropriately, Eye of the Beholder. Yes. Season two, episode six. And dude, think how simple of, of a concept that is, but yet how it's so resonant. And in and for all of us, especially, you know, today with Instagram, you know what I mean? Yeah. Everybody wants to be beautiful, but it's very subjective. And that's an episode written by Rod Serling. And it definitely has that signature twist ending that made the show so storied and significant. And it is perhaps one of the best examples of the show. Okay, my turn. <laughs> Go ahead. This was season one, episode eight. The name of the episode is Time Enough at Last. This episode involves a very bookish, very nerdy banker who runs afoul with his manager and everyone else and his wife because all he wants to do is read books and magazines. Um, And uh, the world around him doesn't want him to. His wife especially hates it. She destroys his books, scolds him whenever she finds him doing it, thinks it's a waste of time. So one day he goes to the bank vault to uh, read a book during his lunch break. And when that happens... A uh, nuclear strike hits his city and a nuclear war breaks out while he's in the bank vault. This is very topical in that regard because this was 1959. The Cold War was a big fear for everyone. The idea that the world would end via nuclear holocaust was on everyone's mind of all ages all the time. It was a serious threat that it would really happen. The following year or the year after was the Bay of Pigs thing where it really literally almost happened. Or the Cuban Missile Crisis, pardon me. So – The nuclear war happens. He comes out of the bank vault and everyone is dead. There's no one left alive. He is the only person alive. All of the buildings are destroyed. He wanders around for days and can't find anyone else. But he does find food. You know, there's canned food. He's got plenty of food to eat. He's still okay. And then at the end of the episode, he's thinking of killing himself because he's all by himself. He's like, if only there was something I could do to pass the time. And then he discovers the local library which is destroyed, but all of the books are just scattered around everywhere. So he goes and collects all these books and is in pure delight because he has all the time in the world now to read all of the books he ever wanted to do. He's got food. Nobody will bother him. He's the happiest he's ever been. But then at the very, very end of the episode, while reaching for a book, his glasses fall from his face and shatter, and he's basically blinded. That's Rod Serling. It's basically, hey, how can I recap the whole, you know, or retell the story of my friend getting a crate landing on his head at the last second and killing him? It's so morbid. It's so morbid. There's no question that he often wrote stories that ended with 
terrible, you know, endings. <laughs> like, like yeah, let me set you up for happiness, and then I'm just going to yank it right out from under you. Yeah, he gave you a little ray of hope at the end of a really grisly, <laughs> gruesome episode, and then, like, even the little ray of hope he gives you, he snatches it away. And that started that that film uh, or that one started Burgess Meredith, who would later go on to be. He was in tons of movies throughout his career, but he would be really famous uh, for being in the Rocky films as Mickey, the boxing trainer. Which yeah, is Rocky. really funny. Yeah, which is really funny because of how much boxing influenced Rod Serling's work as well. <laughs> so crazy. You know what I, I loved about that episode was how I think it resonated. Like he truly understood his audience. Like for me, I was like, you know, even throughout much of my life, I have always – even recently loved going to the library. Like I love the library. I can write in the library. Mm -hmm. I can mm -hmm. walk around and find books and read books without even having to check them out. Just kind of skim things, go back and write, go back. I, like I, I live for the library. And so I so identified with that character where I was like, yeah, I, I get that. You don't want to screw people. I don't want to be around people. I want to be around books, you know? And uh, so it was really, it, it was so insightful of him. He knew his audience. Okay, it's your turn for another episode. All right. I think that uh, my next one would uh, – this is one my, – my next episode was called The Serve Man, and this is one that's been played out. I think it might have even been – based on a, a short story. I'm not sure about that, but this was one that was uh, parodied a lot in, uh, or sure, at least sure. once in, in the Simpsons, but I've seen it in other places also. And it was just a really cool twist ending where they had um, aliens that had come and visited earth. Right. And there was a book and uh, they, they thought it was like, th that they were going to, they were, they were taking people right from earth. They came to Earth and uh, solved all of society's problems first. That's right. Yes. Yeah, they came and, and they used a book. They carried with them a book called To Serve Man and came to Earth and solved everybody's problems. That was the, how the story is set up. Yeah. And so it was like this great thing where you're like, yes, finally we have these saviors that are going to save us. And it kind of reminds me of what was it? Uh, childhood, uh, childhood's End. By, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Right. Very similar, you know, where aliens come and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, 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 yeah. whoa. This is different than we thought it was going to be. And this thing had been played out like in numerous. I think V was very much like that. Do you yeah, remember that yeah. series? So, yeah, v? yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Very freaking similar, series. right? Yeah, it's a great yeah. series actually. Yeah, so this story is so resonant because you kind of see this playing again and again and again, and in the end, it's a cookbook. You know what I mean? They're going to serve man. Yeah, yeah, they're, so. they're, they're going uh, <laughs> to how to serve humans, or I can't remember the Simpsons parody of it, but it's like one of the it's like the first Halloween episode from like 1990 um, with the uh, aliens Kang and Kodos. Great episode. Great twist ending, you know, and that one's actually not, I mean, Sterling wrote the teleplay, but it's actually based on a Damon Knight short story called To Serve Man. And Damon Knight was a uh, popular science fiction writer at the time. I actually read the short story and then I saw the, sh the, the thing. So I was like, whoa, that's so rad. I think the next episode that I will go with, I, I actually had that one on my list because it's so iconic, but mm -hmm. um, I think I'm going to switch to something else. Another really great one. Season two, episode 15 is an episode called The Invaders. And this episode is about uh, a woman living on her own in the outskirts of town in like a cabin type situation. And a tiny spaceship lands on her roof. 
and a little tiny spaceman comes out of it and starts walking around. And she is terrified of this spaceman and, you know, starts doing everything she can to get away from it, to fight it off. She eventually does destroy it. But at the end, it's revealed that the spaceship that the little tiny man came in was an Earth spaceship and that the planet that it landed on was actually a planet with giant humans. So uh, it was like a forced perspective episode. And uh, I'll tell you, it's really cool because it's got a real Hitchcockian feel because there's very little dialogue in the episode. And what was the name of it? I don't even remember this It's one. called The Invaders. It's season two, uh, episode 15. I and, can't wait to watch that now. And in the end, you realize that the woman is not the victim of alien harassment. She's a giant alien creature smashing humans. But, you know, she is still afraid. Like her feelings are just as real of this even though the alien her the alien from her perspective is from earth it's still you know an alien invader from the way she sees it mm, i can't wait to watch that one that's rad i love it that sounds rad that sounds like a really good one for my third one i am gonna pick a uh this uh, it's actually a new orleans uh episode oh, okay you know do you know what it's called oh no i don't know this is called the masks Oh, I I do know the episode. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. And so it takes place, I think, during Mardi Gras. And and what happens is a guy is on his deathbed. He's about to die, right? Mm -hmm. And he's got this family that they want his money, his daughter. And and so they all come and he's like, listen, I want everybody to wear a mask. Okay. And here, I'm going to give you your mask. And the masks are actually really freaking, it's such black humor. Like his, 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 I think it's his daughter is a hypochondriac. And so he gives her a mask in which she's all afraid of everything. And so he's really kind of mocking his family and cause he knows they're just after his money. And, uh, and he's like, and I'm going to wear a mask too. And so he has a mask that has like a skull because he's about to die. And so it's as freaking black humor as it gets. It's, awesome i love that kind of thing and uh and so at the end the twist ending is had at the end um when they have to wear the mask till midnight when they take off the masks their faces are now permanently those masks right and uh so it's just kind of you know just funny and dark and morbid so but i also like that episode because that was directed by a woman and this was at a time when it was, yeah, it was so rare. Rod Serling was so forward thinking in that respect. Uh, it hats off to him, right? And it's a definitely directed episode as well. And uh, that's another one written by him. So he turned over his own script to a woman. And of course, it might have been the influence he had from Lucille Ball. That's true. Another strong woman, right? But I Lupino uh, was a pretty terrific director back in the day and actress and did all sorts of stuff. She had a 48-year career, 59 films, directed eight. Holy moly. Not shabby at all. Prolific. Prolific, for sure. That episode, the one you're talking about, The Masks, is season five. That's the final season. Episode 25, if you want to check that one out. Okay, my final episode is probably the most parodied, probably the most widely known episode of the series for a number of reasons. But it is called Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. And this episode stars a pre-Star Trek William Shatner as an airliner pilot who sees a monster on the wing of the plane and can't convince anyone else on the plane that there's a monster on the wing destroying the engine as they fly. And it is a great 
terrifying episode. It's not really a twist ending episode so much. It's based on a Richard Matheson short story, and it was directed by Richard Donner, who, uh, you know, made the Superman movie years later and the Lethal Weapon series and Goonies and Scrooged. That's crazy. Yeah, he just died like two months ago. I know. I saw that. Yeah. This is one of his earlier works. He was already 31 when he was directing these episodes, so he wasn't like a super young guy. That's how long Richard Donner's career was. This episode is really, really scary and is without question a big influence on shows like The X-Files and Tales from the Crypt and that kind of thing. More of a horror episode than a science fiction episode. Yeah, and but it's it was so iconic that they ended up, when they did the reboot, they did the movie in the 80s, um, that it was one of the... Uh, the, yeah. the short stories that they yeah, had. John Lithgow appeared in that version of it. And uh, the, the new Jordan Peele Twilight Zone features a twist remake of it as well, though I have not, oh, seen, that right. I have yeah. not seen that episode yet. But I, yeah, it, I it's saw on, it. It's, it's very good. So even now we've got more Twilight Zone. Jordan Peele is, uh, you know, probably the biggest horror director in Hollywood right at the moment and is still rebooting this franchise from 60 years ago. The show premiered 62 years ago. And they're there. And Jordan Peele is now directing it and opening. He opens every monologue like Serling did. I I've, I don't know if you've seen them all, but they're oh, really, really them, good. I generally appreciate everything Jordan Peele's involved in. I've liked him all the way going back to Key and Peele. Get out and us. Yeah. It's, he's, he's a freaking genius. The, the new one coming out is called Nope. And I'm <laughs> really looking forward to that. That's a great name for a horror film. I know. You know what? That makes me think about this is that we got to do when that, when is that come out? We got to do an episode on Jordan Peele. You know, that would be great. Mostly he's a horror director, but infinite horror. Yeah. You know, maybe we'll just make, we'll rebrand that episode <laughs> as infinite horrors. Yeah, dude. It's so good though, man. Yeah. When it's is so, that coming out? Let's find out. It's just amazing though, that, you know, the, it's continues to just these reboots. You had, what is it? Four different eras of the series right. where you had, um, what was it? 59 at first debuted and then 1985, then 2002 and now 2019. Yeah. And I highly recommend if you haven't seen it, see the movie. Twilight Zone, the movie is so rad. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, Steven Spielberg was involved in it, you know, uh, and the Amazing Stories movie. Um, okay, so in case you guys are wondering, it'll be July of 2022. That actually might work great for us to do an episode of, on Jordan Peele because Infinite Horrors will be in publication by then. Oh, that's going to be so cool. I'm stoked. I'm stoked. Is there anything else you got for this episode? No. On Twilight? Okay. Check out Twilight Zone, the movie, and there was a really horrific accident that happened when they were filming it. Um, there's a scene, again, a war scene. I think they were in Vietnam is where it was supposed to be, and I think they might have been there or in the Philippines, somewhere like that. And they had a helicopter, and the helicopter went down and killed uh, someone during the filming. It was pretty pretty freaking gnarly. I think it, it forced a lot of changes in Hollywood. Yeah, um, I think it killed – As far uh, as safety – one of the directors, if I'm not mistaken, or yeah, it was heavy. I remember one of the actor down. Vic Morrow and two child actors, two Chinese child actors. So yeah, so no, uh, no, no good. No one. Sure. Yeah. So, anyways, no man. It's uh, that was a great episode. I love Twilight Zone, man. I think if you guys go back and watch some of those Twilight Zone episodes, it'll be real easy to see how that kind of stuff influenced a lot of the shows we've mentioned since then, and a lot of the movies, and a lot of generally the direction of fiction. 
And also how we always say politics are intrinsically entwined with science fiction. It's just part of the deal. And if when you just say leave politics out or whatever, you, it just makes you look like you don't know anything about what you're talking about. About sci-fi, yeah. About sci-fi it, it specifically. Sci-fi. I think the more we dig into these things, the more I realize sci-fi is probably the most political genre out there, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I don't know what we're going to do next, but we'll talk about it in the next couple of days. But we don't have a current plan for our next episode. We have another episode that's coming out before this one airs that's still in the can. So uh, we have a little time. So we'll see what happens next. We'll figure it out. All right, brother. Great talking base with you. Oh, thank you so much, man. I'm pumped. All right, man. See you guys next time. Late. Guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, you could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds Magazine. It's a full-color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IWSciFiMag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker and our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. 